So if you're looking at your bulletins and you're like, what is he preaching on? Uh, Pastor Jeremy, uh, like David, prayed, fell ill this week, and so this is uh, a last-minute entry in, into the bulletin. But we will be in John 6 this morning. John 6, I will be reading from verses 22 through 40. Uh, this is the first of Jesus's I, seven I am statements. And if you're an RUF student, uh, you get to hear this once again. So um, without further ado, that, let us um, read the text. I'll pray and then we'll hear God's word unpacked for us. The Apostle John writes, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, uh, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for the person of Jesus who is the bread of life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is here to apply the work of salvation to our hearts, to feed us this very bread this morning. And so, Lord, give us the eyes to see you, the ears to hear you, the hearts to behold you, that that these words coming out of a mouth like mine would be true and living and active and would actually do something to transform us, whether that be bring us to faith for the first time or... or if we are believers here this morning, that it would actually do something to, to change how we live, that we might be united as a body, that we might seek to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, Lord, we need your power. 
pray now. It's in the name we pray. Amen. So there's this book that came out in 1945. It's called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. Um, and if you're like me, you've never heard of this book. <laughs> I stumbled upon this book, uh, I guess, back in September because there's a somewhat famous quote that came from it. The, the protagonist, he's this Roman Catholic priest named Father Smith. Uh, and he's in the conversation with, with a, a woman who, quite frankly, thinks she's, thinks she's too smart for the Bible. Uh, maybe somebody you've encountered here in Ann Arbor or on, on the campus of the University of Michigan. And so her first question to him, and mind you, this was right back in 1945. Her first question to him is, tell me, do you get much response to the old, old story these days? As in, you know, do people still believe the Bible? After some back and forth, eventually uh, he fits her stereotype. You know, he's, he's just some out-of-date prude who, who is content believing these, these miracles. Some, something that she describes as all that poppycock about the virgin birth and miracles. And so as soon as she's about to dismiss this old man for being ridiculous and out of touch with, with the modern world... Uh, he counters a lot of her objections by pointing out that the young man, this is the quote, quote, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God, end quote. What about you this morning? You might not be knocking on the door of the brothel, um, but Father Smith's point remains. Every single one of you this morning is unconsciously looking for God. You're looking for something that will finally fill that God-sized hole in your heart. Uh, this is true because when your infinite desire for life meets the confines of your finite soul, the math always results in restlessness. As the famous philosophers, the, the Almond Brothers, once put it, Lord, I was born a rambling man, trying to make a living and doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. Leaving is always a part of the equation because to settle down and just to simply make a living doesn't really ultimately scratch that itch, does it? And maybe that's the reason why for a lot of my students it's not just enough to get into Michigan and just to get a degree, but you have to triple major, be the president of five major clubs on campus, and date the most attractive person you can find, all within the span of four years. St. Augustine said over 1,500 years ago that the human heart is restless until it finds rest in God. And so whether you actually believe that or not, Jesus has some good news. He is, and he can be, that rest for your soul. As the bread of life, it is him, and only him, that has the capacity to fill your famished soul and satisfy you once and for all with his presence. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He, he is the food that you are made to consume. Food that is free, but also food that never leaves you hungry. So those are, those are my two points this morning. Jesus is free food. The type everybody loves. But he's also soul food. He's free food and he's soul food. So our first point... Jesus is free food. Uh, our text picks up in the middle of an interesting transition. 
I know that's what's kind of hard about parachuting into the middle of the Gospel of John this morning. Jeremy's been faithfully marching us through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but to kind of give you a little bit of a context for where, we're, where we are in, in John, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and, and loaves of bread. Anybody having experienced this miracle uh, firsthand probably would have done what that crowd did in verse 24. John writes, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, that seems obvious. Like, oh, random dude who shows up and feeds everybody? Where'd he go? He's the life of the party. And this isn't unique to Jesus. Jesus does this all throughout the scriptures. First miracle is at a wedding where he turns water into wine. We want to see more of this Jesus. We want to see more of what he can do. To put it, I think, maybe uh, closer to to home for us, I think it's similar to how we kind of react uh, to celebrities, when we encounter celebrities. I don't care how dumb I look chasing them around with a camera. I'm going to do it because that's... Uh, I, I did this the other day. I saw J.J. McCarthy, the top recruit for the incoming Michigan football class in 2021. He was walking down State Street, and I was like, almost wrecked my car. Uh, there's J.J. McCarthy. But, but seriously, have you ever stopped and wondered, <laughs> wondered why like we do that? I'm sure you guys all have a story of some kind of celebrity. Why do we act like a bunch of crazy animals and, and follow these celebrities around? I think there's probably a few reasons we freak out. Here's one. Uh, Whatever happiness that celebrity has given us, whether it be a a favorite song or sports memory, uh, we want more of it. So I mentioned I'm a Michigan sports fan. Um, It's not enough for me to see Michigan wallop Wisconsin by almost 40 in basketball. Like, we want more of that experience. We clamored to hear what it was like to be on the court when Isaiah Livers scored over 20 points. But even that's not enough. We want to know when he's going to do it again. And then when he graduates, we want to know if either Caleb Houston or Frankie Collins is going to provide the goods for us next year. It's insatiable. And so I'm sorry for those of y'all who might not be basketball fans, but hopefully you're tracking with me. We are just like that crowd that goes and follows Jesus to the other side of the sea. We want more of the goods. And how does Jesus respond to them? Read verse 26 again. He pretty much tells it exactly how it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're not seeking me because I did something miraculous and you're wondering if I'm the Messiah or not. You like what I was able to do for you and you want more of it. He goes on in verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. It's as if Jesus is having a conversation with us this morning. It's almost like he's saying, Do not get so obsessed by filling your schedule and remain constantly busy and and that feeling of satisfaction you get by being productive at the end of the day. Uh, Do not get so obsessed with that because at the end of the day, that food... That good, it's ultimately going to wear out. Like your kids are going to end up graduating. 
and leaving, you're going to retire. Somebody, <laughs> your, your body's going to give way. You're not going to be able to do the things you once did. The things that you <laughs> were able to fill your schedule with. Do not get so consumed with those things. That feeling of busyness kind of seems logical on some level. But here's where our, our post-enlightenment secular world um, that we live in ultimately doesn't give us the answers that our souls crave. Because secularism says, even though at the end of the day, that quest you have to remain busy and feel productive will vanish, enjoy that feeling while it lasts. Because ultimately that's all there is. Even though you can get old someday and maybe be bedridden in a hospital, while you're young and mobile and, and have your brain, just enjoy it. Just live it up. Hashtag YOLO. I think, I think we buy into this, and it, I think it, um, for a lot of us, it makes life seem uh, that much more full of zest. It, it seems to be actually advocating for uh, happiness, for life, for life abundantly. But it's really depressing. If you, if you actually step back and think about how depressing this is, plans get canceled, uh, go find another friend who's, who's going to distract you from the constant nagging feeling that you're alone. And the whole time Jesus says, your effort to thwart that feeling of, of loneliness or shame or, or whatever it is, it's futile. You can't run from it your whole life. It's not going to give you what you actually want. And so we need food that does not perish, but rather endures to eternal life. It's like a battery that keeps going forever, never loses its charge. Gasoline to put in your tank that never runs out. Food that never perishes. And so here's where a lot of you this morning are going, yeah, that sounds awesome. I've grown up in the church, I've heard that. But even if food like this existed, how can I get my hands on it? Even if I could get my hands on it, how can I know for sure that it's food that, that is never going to perish? How do I know for sure it's actually better than the secular narrative that's being put out there? There's no way to verifiably, verifiably prove that. But it's almost like Jesus anticipates your objections. Look at verses 28 through 33 with me. The people ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Translation, what must I do to be knowing that like God is at work in my life? What must I do to, to know that like my life, I'm, I'm living it to the fullness? They want to know how they can get their hands on this bread that never perishes. What do they need to go out and do and earn it? And in verse 29, Jesus flips the script on them. He flips the script on us. It's not a work they must do, but rather it's a work they must receive. Y'all catch, uh, catch the difference? It's the passive work of believing in Him whom God has sent. The thing that separates Christianity from every other world the other. It's what you must receive rather than what you must do. But here's why it's actually a work. Jesus calls it a work. This is why it's a work. That no one receives something... They feel like they already have. You and me are the same way when it comes to food. We don't have an appetite for food if, if we're stuffed. 
We aren't hungry if we've already eaten. You're not going to come to church if you already feel spiritually satisfied. My point is, you will never believe in Him whom God has sent if you don't first make room for Him. Another way of saying this is, you will never receive Jesus if you're not first ravenous for the food that He offers. What does that look like? How, how does that happen? Here's, here's maybe one way it happens. People who are hungry, people who have this ravenous desire to make room for Jesus, are people who know what it's like to be up studying all night, only to fail that math test they desperately want to do well on. People who are hungry are, are people who are, get dressed to go to that social gathering, only to feel incredibly anxious and awkward the entire time. You know, a lot of you guys feel that way even at church. People who are hungry are people who acutely sense that the world isn't how it's supposed to be. And even more importantly, maybe inherently, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I think whether you're a Christian or not, on some level, I think that's low-hanging fruit. What I mean by that is, I think we can all maybe be honest with ourselves to go, yeah, something's off. But instead of using that as an opportunity to just jump to the next item on the McDonald's dollar menu, Jesus is here offering you a three-star Michelin menu with one item on it. Himself. Instead of consuming anybody and anything out there that will make you feel better about yourself, Jesus is inviting you to consume Him. Uh, so like I've mentioned uh, a lot of times this morning, I work with college students. And a lot of college students will come to me and they'll ask, you know, hey, should I date so-and-so? Uh, this girl or this guy is into me. How do I know whether or not I should date them? And oftentimes what I see out of college students is uh, such a desire to feel known and to feel loved that they're just willing to date. And this is not just true about college students. This is true about everybody, right? You're just willing to date that person who's going to make you feel good about yourself. You can consume their, their emotional affection in an effort to feel known and to feel loved, which, by the way, it's an inherently a bad thing, right? Like I would argue that's exactly what we're made for. That's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to address in our text this morning. But if, if instead we consume Jesus, what that ends up doing is actually send us on a trajectory that leads me to my second point, which is uh, Jesus as soul food. What does it look like to consume Jesus, a food that, that never perishes? As I've said already, when you consume Jesus, your hunger forever goes away. Um, but here's why that ultimately matters. When you consume him, you don't have a need to consume other people anymore. Instead, you know what? Uh, you can actually now truly serve other people. So going back to, to my illustration, you don't need to consume a, the affection of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But even for those of you all who, who aren't college students, right? you don't need to consume... Um, people. You don't need to consume technology, Netflix. Uh, at the end of the day, when you're exhausted, it's, it's, you don't need to consume these things to feel right and to feel at peace and like with the world. Consuming Jesus is the most freeing thing you could ever do because it allows you to not be so self-obsessed anymore. And that's, that's not a condemnation, right? This is how we're made. We have this God-sized hole in our hearts 
and we're going to be constantly filling it with stuff. And as Jesus is here to set us free from ourselves. Okay, that, that might sound appealing, you say, but how do I know this Jesus guy truly is the bread of life? If only I had a sign. If God exists and really is good, then why doesn't he give me a sign? Anybody ever hear that? I've actually said that. Um, verses 31 through 32 is, is where you need some, some Bible knowledge to kind of make sense of what Jesus is really getting at. In the Old Testament, after God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt, after they had crossed the Red Sea, they end up wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years. Verse 31 is the Jews' way of responding to Jesus. They say, how do you explain the miracle that happened in the wilderness all those years ago? Hey, dude who's feeding us free, free you know, bread, free fish. How do you explain Moses? How do you explain the, the bread that he provided? Eventually, Jesus, in verse 35, he tells them. He says, because I am that bread. It had nothing to do with Moses. And really, it had nothing to do with the bread itself. That whole demonstration in the wilderness was more than just filling empty bellies. It was a demonstration for you of what God is like. He's a God who provides physical sustenance for his people. Yes. But even more so, he is a God who comes down for his people. Who is with his people. Who is inherently for his people. He isn't lofty and removed from the affairs of the world, asking you to get your stuff together to find him. And do you see the irony in verse 34? As Jesus explains what this God is like, the people say, yes, give us this bread always, we want it. It's very much how I respond in church on Sunday. Yes, I believe this God. I want it. But what they fail to see is that this God is right before them. He's right before them, staring them in the face. And so do you want a sign this morning that not only God is real, but maybe more than that, that God is for you? That he has set his affection upon you? That the, God, the Bible, wants nothing more than relationship with you? Here, here's your sign. The Jesus that you see right in front of you in your text this morning lived a real historical life. Not even secular scholars deny that. But more than just Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling among us as Emmanuel, God in the person of Jesus Christ hung out on a Roman torture device, naked and ashamed for hours, crying for mercy, and no mercy came. He was utterly despised, rejected, and forsaken so that you might be welcomed, accepted, and embraced by your Father in heaven once and for all. And that's why, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we want to accept you and embrace you and welcome you here among the community of God's people. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Here's why Jesus can be your long-lasting soul food. He says straight up, very explicitly in the text, that it's God's will for those who are His, for those who are His people, for those who have put their faith in Him, is God's will that He will never lose them. Do you know what this means? It means three things. One, Jesus came down from heaven. He didn't come down from heaven willy-nilly just to hang out, just to be you know, the cool guy who said some wise things. He came down with purpose and on mission. Jesus came down for His people. It's the greatest love story ever told. It's a story of a, a husband relentlessly going after his bride. If you've never seen the Bible like this, oh my goodness, I would love to unpack the scriptures with you. Jesus came down for his people, and if you've put your faith in Christ tonight, Jesus came down for you. He came down for you. He came down to go to the cross with your name written on his hands. 2,000 years ago, before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes. Second thing this means, because he came down for you, that means you can stop striving to climb that ladder. You can stop anxiously running around trying to make the grades, trying trying to win your boss's affection and approval, trying to uh, you know convince your kids that, that you're the cool parent. The best thing that has ever happened to you whether it be at 20 years of age, 30 years of age, 60 years of age, happened 2,000 years ago. That's offensive to say in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We live in a very a place with a lot of driven, smart, intellectual people. And the greatest thing that has ever happened to you happened 2,000 years ago. But if that's true, then those grades, that boss's approval, whatever your kids think of you, it's all just icing on the cake. You don't ultimately need those things to be okay. You don't ultimately need the boyfriend or girlfriend to be okay, right? And, and thirdly, perhaps most importantly, verses 37 through 39 show that for all of eternity, for all of eternity, the Father has been cahoots with the Son, who has been cahoots with the Spirit about this plan of redemption. This wasn't a last-minute, last-ditch effort to go and save some people. Oh, they found the sin in the garden. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? we got to come up with a plan. No, this has been a plan throughout all eternity with the Father initiating it, the Son accomplishing it, and the Spirit now this morning applying it to your hearts so that you might know the fullness of what it means to consume Jesus by faith. This Trinitarian work of salvation is why Jesus can be so confident in verse 39 that he should lose nothing that has been given to him. I think too often, at least in 21st century American culture, uh, we think of putting faith in Jesus as kind of this one-time decision that somehow checks your spiritual box and makes you good to go. Or come to church on Sunday morning and, you know, you sing the praise music and you get the feels and maybe not this church, but there's like the, the lights that are dim and... And, and it's this emotional experience that gives you that spiritual checkbox. 
You're good to go. Once you do that, it's up to, up to you the rest of the week, the rest of your life, to hold on tight, to read your Bible, make sure you're praying. It's up to you to do these things. Otherwise, you might lose Jesus. Otherwise, you might lose that feeling you had on Sunday morning. Anybody ever say something along these lines? I'm a Christian, but I haven't been to church in years. Maybe not you guys this morning because you're at church, but I'm a Christian and I can't stop looking at pornography. I'm a Christian, but I doubt the Bible's legitimacy. I'm a Christian, but... Anybody ever say something along those lines, something similar to that? Definitely, definitely me. My son, we've started taking him, he's two and a half, we've started taking him to uh, swim lessons at the Goldfish Swim School. And Wednesday mornings, it's really fun for me to, to hop in the pool with my son, and, and he's splashing around, he's, he's kind of squirrely, he doesn't really like it. Um, but at certain times, he'll jump off the edge into the pool and uh, immediately cling on to me. It's kind of this really sweet moment, just as a dad. And never once have I thought, man, you know what? I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let go of my son here and see if, see if he can, do it. That I would. I'd be a really bad dad, right? Christian believer, it is foolish to think that the Lord your God is gonna somehow just see if you can make it. He has you to hold you to never let you go. So that you might know him. So you might actually rest in his embrace. So you might not be my squirrely son. That you would let him hold you. No matter how much this morning you seem to be running in the opposite direction. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, he has you. It's never about how much you're able to hold on to him. If that was true, he... You would have let go a long time ago. I forget the theologian that says, if I could lose my salvation, I would every second of every hour of every day. And to be quite frank with you, this is, this is my entire job as, as a pastor, is to convince you that this narrative, this is reality. There is no I'm a Christian, but you are a Christian if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's to tell the story of the Bible in a way that is so convincing and so lovely and so wonderful that that would be your story. That that story would be more real and more true and more living to you this morning than some kind of false narrative that you're living out of that says, I am not enough, I am not worthy, I have done this, God can never love me, He has let go of me. Those aren't true. I know, I know so many of you are living out of that narrative this morning because I'm living out of that narrative. And that is not what God has called us to this morning. The narrative of the Bible, that is our story. That is who we are. And what makes the gospel so sweet? What makes consuming the bread of life food for your soul? Is that there is a God of heaven, who gave, there is a God in heaven who gave everything gave everything to have you. He paid the highest price there was through the shed blood of his own son. And if God went to that length to get you, 
then you better believe that he will never let you go. I mean, logically, this just makes sense. If you invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into a home, you're going to make sure to take care of it. No matter how much you might at try, uh, no matter how much at times you might try to escape his embrace, the good news of the gospel says that he will forever have you. And so there is no I'm a Christian but. If you've placed your faith in Jesus this morning, he has you. He's at work to transform you. And because this is true, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time to repent once again of the false narratives that we live out of. And to consume Jesus. To consume him as the bread of life. And so would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you in repentance. I come to you in repentance. Confessing that we too often live out of these false narratives that just are not true about who you are are not true about who we are, are not true about the world that you designed and, and created us to live in. Forgive us that sin has so blinded us to this reality that Jesus is all we need. Quite frankly, he's all we have. Every other food that we strive to consume or to create or to live off of just ends up perishing, ends up laying us down, and even though we know that to be true this morning, Heavenly Father, once again we find ourselves in this place where we're coming to you and we're confessing this once again. And so would you meet us with grace upon grace? Would you lavish the abundance of who you are upon us? That we might live more out of the reality of what is true and less out of the reality that this world uh, is all there is. And so be with my brothers and sisters now. Bless us as we come to the table. It's in your name we pray. Amen.